welcome to the IASB podcast from the IASB public meeting from the 27th to the 29th of April 2015. I'm Roseanne Shipman from the communications team at the IFRS Foundation and I'm joined by Stephen Cooper, IASB board member, and Alan Tashira, senior technical director. Steve, I understand that you discussed deferring the effective date of the new revenue recognition standard. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah, thanks, Roseanne. Um, we uh, have decided that the effective date that was previously scheduled uh, to be 2017, 1st January 2017, should be deferred by one year, uh, and therefore the new standard will apply to annual reporting periods beginning on or after 1st of January 2018. Uh, early application of the standard will still be permitted, so those entities which are preparing for a 1st of January 2017 application date uh, can still apply that and, and not disrupt their preparations. However, the board was persuaded by uh, a number of constituents that made representations to us that uh, uh, there would be an advantage in delaying the effective date by one year uh, to ensure uh, high quality implementation and to allow sufficient time for entities to complete the necessary systems changes. It should be noted, of course, that the FASB has also uh, elected to defer the application standard by one year, uh, although still permitting the 1st of January 2017 application, so they were allowing that early application by one year, uh, and they'd taken that decision uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, this is, of course, a converged standard, uh, and therefore maintaining that convergence in terms of the effective data is also an advantage of the ISB electing uh, for this deferral. Uh, the board will uh, put this into effect uh, pretty quickly. We propose to issue uh, an exposure draft uh, shortly. It will have a short comment period, but it will be at least 30 days. It'll be a very short ED, obviously, with just the, the one number change compared with the existing standard. The intention is that the board will re-deliberate this at its July meeting and will proceed to amend uh, the final standard immediately uh, thereafter uh, and that's uh, and that's the uh, proposal on the effective date there was one other thing that we did discuss uh, in relation to revenue recognition and this came out of the transition resource group uh, activity and that related to collectability considerations uh, and in fact the board decided not to do anything in this area believing that the standard is is clear and that there was no need for any uh, clarifications However, of course, the board has uh, made some decisions in response to TRG discussions and there will be an exposure draft of some limited clarifications that we believe would be helpful uh, in respect of IFRS 15 and that will be published uh, sometime uh, in the next two or three months, I think, Alan. Is it June, June the scheduling for yeah. that? Yes. Okay, and that's it for revenue recognition. Okay, Alan, you also continued discussions on the Disclosure Initiative. Yep, thank you. We did. Uh, we had quite a few papers in this, this particular session. Just as a reminder, um, the Disclosure Initiative, the, the main part of this is, and we use lots of acronyms, is the POD, so the Principles of Disclosure. The idea is that we're putting together a discussion paper, which we expect to have out towards the end of this year, um, and trying to, to set up what we think is a new design for a replacement of IS-1, which is Presentation of Financial financial statements, it's essentially the way, in my language, it's kind of like an instruction set for a preparer on how to 
generally shape your financial statements and what should go in the primary financial statements, how you should construct the notes, how much detail and so on. So the topics we looked at in this particular meeting um, relate to how you might put the notes together in particular and they do with aggregation and summarization information that does affect the face of the um, financial statements as well. Um, and we're trying to put together some principles that will appear will be suggested in this discussion paper on appropriate aggregation, what level of summarisation, for example, is important. Um, we already have some reasonable words, I think, in IS-1, that because um, the difficulty is there's so much information that companies have, how much can they draw out of that and summarise it down and, and effectively communicate um, how they're operating, their performance and position, for example. So we, the easiest thing for people to do is to go and have a look at the papers, um, all of our papers are available on the, on the website, in this case it's paper 11C and it, it sets out our principles for aggregation or disaggregation um, and our, our principles for summarisation. The other areas we looked at in relation to this is what, how much comp, what is the content of the notes or what is the purpose of the notes. Um, what we've been doing over the last few months is identifying what the purpose of the primary financial statements, so that's statement of profit or loss or comprehensive income, state, uh, statement of financial position, the cash flows. If we understand what their purpose is, and we also establish reasonably clearly what the purpose of the notes is, then people have an expectation as to what type of information they'll see in the, in the notes. And the notes essentially are designed to supplement and expand on the information you get in the primary financial statements. So what we've been developing to include in this new replacement standard is a description of the role of the notes um, and then a central set of disclosure objectives that are built around the objective of the financial statements, that's the primaries, and then the objective of the notes themselves. Now these are fairly high level objectives but um, again the idea is to paint a, a reasonable picture so the carer coming along knows roughly how to build or shape the financial statements. They'll still have to go to the individual financial reporting standards to identify what the information might be in relation to, for example, property plant and equipment and so on, but this is trying to get an overall balance of these things. Um, related to that is the way we actually do our drafting, um, and we also had a look at a paper to do with um, drafting of disclosure requirements. We've had the, um, the staff of the New Zealand Standards Centre has been working on this for us. Um, this will be also included in the discussion paper. That, uh, that if anything, it's likely that we'll develop a drafting guide for our board so that um, this will be, uh, I guess, a, a guide or a series of principles about how we actually draft standards. We want to actually expose this and, and discuss that as part of the discussion paper. And they are things like the type of language we actually use in the standards. The one of the criticisms we face is that some of our standards are quite prescriptive. They say an entity shall disclose the following. In other cases, we've got reasonable objectives, so somebody reading the standard understands, hopefully, what it is we're trying to achieve with our disclosures, but then we couple that with quite prescriptive language which says, in achieving that objective, any entity shall disclose all of the following, and then there's a list. That's perceived as being a checklist. We're doing a couple of things. One is, um, some of our older standards don't actually have objectives in terms of disclosure, they just list disclosure requirements. And we've asked the New Zealanders to rewrite, um, as a working draft anyway, IS-16, which deals with property plan and equipment. It's quite an old standard. And IFRS-3 business combinations, which is a much newer one that does have some objectives, 
and ask them to rewrite them as if they said um, with less prescriptive language, um, more guiding language, and much clearer objectives and sub-objectives. So somebody picking it up understands that rather than simply say, uh, we want you to tell us useful lives of assets. Why do you want to understand useful lives? So we're explaining that we're trying to, to help the user understand the cycle of their property plan and equipment. In other words, whether they're likely to have to replace the equipment, for example. Um, some information about measurement uncertainty. And so that's the expected lives and, and how they estimate the estimated residual value when they uh, have finished using the assets. So getting much more clarity about that is, is, is very important to us. As I said, it will end up, we think, being more of a, a guide for the board in terms of a drafting guide. But if people from outside see the way we're drafting, um, I think that's, that's a very important step as well. And of course, it's all very well for us to um, think about a different way of drafting, but preparers have to be able to work with it. And it has to produce information that's helpful to users as well. So we'll be working with preparers, auditors and regulators and doing some field testing on that, and that which is likely to be the next step for us on that side. So it's actually quite a lot in there. Um, the other leg was uh, a discussion we went back to have a look at materiality. Um, I'll mention one aspect of that and that is aligning the definition um, within our standards and that um, we, we have a definition of materiality that's, uh, that, that's included in our framework. We have a very similar definition in IS-1 and again in IS-8. There are just very slight wording differences and so it's incumbent upon us to to align all those and get much um, a clearer definition. We're going to use the principles of disclosure uh, discussion paper as an opportunity to have a look at some of the, the, the wording and the subtleties of that. Just to give you an example, that the, the current definition tends to emphasize making sure you don't leave out information. And we're going to try and suggest a way that we rebalance that to say, um, as well as making sure that you've got all the information investor needs, you shouldn't obscure or obfuscate or, or um, make it so difficult to see the important information by cluttering it up with, with too much irrelevant information. So we'll get a little bit of symmetry in that. Um, that will be in the discussion paper, so there's no immediate change being proposed to the definition, but that people will see that as, as part of that um, the, the broader discussion. Um, and we also have probably a narrative to that is a practice statement that yeah, thanks, Alan. Um, so in addition to uh, focusing on the definition of materiality and aligning the definitions, as Alan says, the ISB has also been working on a proposed practice statement relating to the application of materiality to financial statements. Now, this, um, this is non-mandatory. We have one previous example of a practice statement that the board has issued, which relates to management commentary. But we felt that... Uh, a practice statement of this nature would help in the application of materiality where we know that there have been problems in the past. Uh, so this will be an exposed draft, it'll be open for public comment um, uh, as usual with our, our documents. Uh, the, the, the meeting that we've just had was to give permission to the staff to, to ballot this particular document and issue it uh, uh, in due course. But the whole idea of it is to try and uh, eliminate some of the problems that we know exist in practice where whilst people are aware of the theory of materiality, aware of the definition, 
somehow there seems to be a difficulty in actually applying materiality in practice with the resulting complaint that uh, there seems to be situations where information that would seem to be not material presents itself in financial statements and that court that contributes in part to the, this disclosure overload issue that many people uh, discuss. So uh, issuing this practice statement we hope will help with that. Um, as I said, it'll be an exposure draft and we'll look forward to uh, comments that people have on whether they think a practice statement of this nature would help and, and in particular the content of the statement that, uh, that we're going to issue. Thank you, Steve. Um, Alan, you also looked at one of the research projects on high inflation. Yeah, thanks. This has been a long-standing project. Um, it was motivated by some work that was originally done by the Argentinian Standard Setter uh, and then followed up um, by some work done by the group of Latin American Standard Setters, or GLASS, as uh, it's also known. Our Emerging Economies group, um, which comprises a quite large number of emerging economies, has also discussed this. The, the issues, there are two things. That, well, the main issue here is that we have a standard that deals with what we call hyperinflation. And hyperinflation, most of the definitions, essentially the, the currency is, has lost its credibility and, and people use as a rough benchmark that uh, inflation has reached a point of uh, 100% over a three year period. So you've got very high inflation, it's so high that's why they call it hyperinflation. Now, the, the difficulty that some countries' emerging economies have told us is that they have high inflation. So this is 8, 9, 10% inflation, yeah. even 15% inflation on an ongoing basis. And they say that it undermines the quality of financial reporting because when you do have high inflation over a period of time, well, obviously the amount you paid for uh, an asset, for example, five years ago, becomes increasingly meaningless, as they say. So that we've been asked to have a look at doing two things. Um, one is to eliminate or reduce that threshold, in other words, allow our own standard on hyperinflation to take effect much more quickly, knowing that even though the, 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 um, there's a numerical threshold of 100% over three years, it's only one indicator, but it, it seems to be the one that most people focus on. So the suggestion was that we would lower that down to approximately 8% per annum or 26% over three years. So that's, that's quite a lowering of that. Secondly, they asked us to modify the procedures, in other words, to modify the our existing standard IS-29, financial reporting hyperinflationary economies. Now, we had a look at both of those issues, um, and the board decided that not to propose lowering the threshold. Um, there were some concerns about whether or not IS-29, our, our existing standard, would work well for um, more general as a more general inflation standard. It's an acknowledgement that when our standard kicks in, it's because of extreme circumstances, and lowering it um, really does put a lot of pressure on that standard. Um, we also had a look more generally at, uh, at whether we should develop an inflation standard. Um, there's been a long history of attempts to do so, even during periods of high inflation globally, and, and none have been actually successful. And there's a decision made that, in the light of other priorities, that we should actually um, not pursue that as an option either. So what we're doing is putting this down in terms of priority on our, our agenda, uh, our research program, so it's a lower priority. And we've got a public agenda consultation coming up later this year. We'll get feedback with that and see whether we remove it completely. Now, there is some sympathy though for um, the fact that during high inflation, some of the information may um, 
at least some of the quality for it, as people say in terms of um, your ability to analyse. So what we are doing um, is asking the Emerging Economies Group to have a look to see whether or not there'd be some merit in developing disclosure requirements for entities and jurisdictions suffering high inflation. So rather than us step in and modify the accounting, whether we should develop a set of disclosure requirements that help users during those periods um, to, to better understand the, the entities. Thank you, Alan. Um, and has there been anything else of interest? Uh, yeah, there's one thing, uh, and that's the um, a, a draft interpretation that the Interpretations Committee is going to issue relating to accounting for uncertainties uh, in income taxes. Uh, now, this is not directly the work of the board, although it did come to the board in the last meeting for uh, its approval for the issuance of this exposure draft. But, but I think it's worth mentioning because uncertain tax positions, as they're called, has been a long-standing issue uh, in IFRS and one where, in fact, the board has uh, attempted in the past to uh, make some clarifications, make some changes. Uh, we had a, an exposure draft on tax some time ago which included this it also dealt with other things but we didn't take that particular exposure draft forward anyway what it deals with is the recognition and measurement of income tax payable or, or recoverable when there are uncertainties related to the amount uh, of that income tax uh, it also includes um, issues to do with the unit of measurement for the uncertainties and, and how one deals with assumptions about tax authorities examination so it provides uh, clarification in some respects, but also uh, goes a little bit further than that in explaining how to measure uh, those uncertain tax positions. So it's really something just to, to point out uh, to our listeners that, that this is going to come, and uh, and it's quite an important uh, in, an interpretation, a draft interpretation, so I, I think it's uh, good, good for people to look out for that. And that's it. Great. Thank you very much, Stephen and Alan. Um, the next meeting of the ISB is on the 18th to 22nd of May. I'd like to issue the usual reminder that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the presenters. And the official summary of the meeting is available on the IFRS website, www.ifrs.org. Thank you.